morning, Calvary Church. Good to be with you this morning. So we're uh, in the middle of our series on 1 Thessalonians, so you can turn to chapter 2 if you'd like to be prepared. And we're going to talk this morning about a section in the gospel, or a section in 1 Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul really reveals the depth of his love and his heart for the church of Jesus Christ. And I think from it we will learn uh, ourselves how to love the church even better than we do now. So, you know, one common experience that, uh, that is sad and painful in our lives is that of when we get separated from our children. You know, a father or a mother gets separated from her child. You know, sometimes it's a relatively mild experience. It's just part of living life. But at other times, it can be quite disturbingly tragic. And, um, and sometimes it's just from, you know, the way life works it out, or sometimes it's the evils that uh, take place in our world. But let me just mention a few of the more common ones, minor ones. You know, it's really hard, for example, especially for the first-time mother or father to send their child off to school on the first day of school. Hopefully we get our first day of school this year, right? But uh, that's, that's hard. It's really hard when your uh, child goes off to college or your child joins the military. It's really hard to see your children and grandchildren move a long distance away from you uh, because you know you're not going to see them as frequently. But whatever the circumstances are, whether they're positive or negative, you know, as parents, we're always filled with the desire that our children do well, that they're successful, and of course, above all, that they maintain a vibrant Christian faith. That's what we want. So now, consider a parallel situation. You know, it's really hard, if you've been on a short-term mission project before, it's really hard to come to the end of that trip, because you've got to leave some new friends, probably some new believers. And they're your children in the Lord, so to speak. And whenever that time would come, it has to come. It's always too soon, it seems. It's too soon to leave them, even if it's just a matter of weeks that we've gotten to know them. Well, this is the situation that the Apostle Paul is in and the kinds of emotions that he and his team are going through regarding the church that had just been started in the city of Thessalonica. So the work of the evil one, of Satan, through the human opposition in the city, drove them out, drove the team out only after a couple of months at most. It was a severe uh, situation. And uh, they were separated prematurely from these new believers, from this new church. So please turn your Bibles to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, starting in verse 17. And we're actually going to be going all the way through chapter 3, verse 13. That's the whole unit it makes up a bulk of this letter the Apostle's writing, and I think you'll see why uh, very shortly. In this passage, our Apostle expresses his pastoral heart uh, for the church there. He continues to refute the opponents who will have the smear campaign going on back in the city, uh, trying to discredit the Paul and the team, trying to destroy the church and hurt people's faith in the Lord Jesus. This passage is actually the most emotional and personal section of the letter. And what we're going to learn this morning is that we're to love the church so much that we're wrapped up in its progress in the gospel. I want to say that again. We're to love the church of Jesus Christ so much that we are just wrapped up in its progress for the gospel. I hope that's your heartbeat. It's been mine for a long time. It's a heartbeat of the Apostle Paul that we see in this letter. In fact, the centerpiece of the section, it really comes out in verses 8 through 10 in chapter 3 where he says this, and I like this translation the best, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. 
For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God for, on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray this morning. Lord God, we do pray this morning. We thank you that you love your church eternally and immensely, more so than we ever could. But we pray that you would stir up within us as your people, as your leaders, as those who share the gospel with those around the world, as those who try to encourage other people in their faith in Jesus Christ, that you would cause us to find an even deeper joy in other people's progress in the gospel. And it would be to us a statement where we could say, we, now we really live, knowing that you're firm in the Lord. So we pray this this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So, our apostle and our passage today and his team, they take four actions that show how much they love the church. They want to bless the church, even though it's far away from them now at this point. They're down in Athens, and they're writing up to the church in Thessalonica. So, in verses 17, just to give you a simple outline, verses 17 to 20, the first action that the apostle takes is he seeks to visit them. He works hard to visit them because he wants to fellowship with them in love. Then in verses 1 to 5 in chapter 3, he sends encouragement on their way to, per, to help them persevere. Third, in verses 6 to 10, he rejoices before God regarding their growth. And then finally, in verses 11 to 13, he prays for their perfection, their final perfection in holiness. So let's do these four actions ourselves. Let's learn about them as we go through them. So this first action of seeking to visit them, to fellowship with them in the love, is, starts in verse 17. And we're just going to read the passage as we go this morning because it's so lengthy, and if we read it all up front, then you'll just forget the paragraph that we're in. So let's start in verse uh, 17 and 18. So he seeks to visit them, but he's, they're presently thwarted by their, on their plans. We see in verses 17 and 18, and then in 19 and 20, we see that, but he still rejoices nonetheless because the Thessalonians really are his glory and joy. And that's what this passage is really all about, glorying in our relationships, our new relationships because of the gospel, and taking joy in those relationships. And that's what we see here. So he begins, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So he begins by describing their separation, actually with, with a word picture in the original Greek language here, that pictures this premature separation of a parent from a child. And as we've mentioned that at the beginning, it can be a very painful thing, it can be a very heart-wrenching experience. And here he's actually speaking uh, in terms on, that, on the far end of that spectrum, whereas like they were tra tragically orphaned, is what he's putting in their minds. It's like a parent and child just being ripped apart by circumstances, but he wants to reassure them this situation was beyond his control, he had nothing to do with it, he didn't abandon them on purpose, as those who were instigating the smear campaign were trying to promote. But he was still with them in spirit, even though he couldn't be with them in person. And for the time being, he's doing everything possible that he can to get back to see them. Notice it begins with the, with the adversative there, the word but. And he's indicating that regardless of the severe opposition, which is just what was talked about earlier in the letter, regardless of the severe opposition, he would attempt to return. And he did attempt to return because of his intense longing for them. In fact, he's indicated he made immediate heroic attempts 
to try to get back to the city, but he couldn't get there. He didn't delay in this time, and regardless of how dangerous it was, he took extreme measures to try to figure out how to get there. Now, we don't actually know what was involved in the situation and all these attempts that he did and why they didn't work out for him. Perhaps the Thessalonians knew what took place, or maybe they would come to know the situation. But the apostle here mentions that his plans were thwarted by Satan. They were thwarted by him. And the word here used for thwarted is the breaking up of a road to make it impassable. So the evil one broke up the road. He could not get back to see these people that he loved. So perhaps, we do have some indications of what could be going on, perhaps those civic officials who basically ran him out of town were severely enforcing the pledge that they took from Jason. If you remember that in Acts 17, when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, then they released them. And so, you know, they're not going to allow Paul and Silas back in the city. Maybe the Jews had formed an evil murderous plot against the Apostle Paul. It wouldn't be the first time that this is what they've done to him. Perhaps Paul was suffering from a great illness that plagued him like he did within the Galatian regions. But perhaps the situation, you know, where he is now down in Corinth was the reason. Maybe it demanded his presence. But this is the most fascinating. I'm always wonder about this question. Maybe you have as too. Is that why does here he attribute the situation to Satan hindering them from getting there? But in other situations that we read in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will attribute the fact that God has stopped them or redirected them. Have you ever had that question too? I mean, how do you know sometimes when we experience similar situations, when our ministry plans get blocked, do we attribute that to Satan thwarting us or do we attribute that to God redirecting us? And how do you know which one's correct? So perhaps the issue is really one of spiritual discernment and maturity and just experience. Maybe it's a conclusion you can only come to from hindsight. And you look back on the situation and you have a little better perspective of what was beneficial for the church or not, and then you can make that assessment. Perhaps both are true. And uh, either could be mentioned appropriately. I mean, we can talk in terms of primary causality and secondary causality in the situation. But I think a really helpful comment comes from John Calvin, actually, in his commentary here, and he talks about how the Apostle Paul truly recognizes this battle with Satan, and yet all the time, all the while, this is under God's design. He just simply says this, Paul says elsewhere that God had not permitted him, but both are true. For although Satan does his part, yet God retains supreme authority so as to open up a way for us as often as he sees good against Satan's will and in spite of his opposition. Paul accordingly says truly that God does not permit, although the hindrance comes from Satan. So hopefully that's helpful to you, is that it can actually be attributed to both, depending on how you're looking at the situation. But regardless, his real confidence is in the fact that the Thessalonians had become so dear to them, he glories in this relationship, the joy that comes from it, and how it's looking forward to eternity. And so we read then, following this, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's desire to see them is attached to his, his great boasting in the Lord, and the Lord's work, and how the Lord worked through the preaching of the gospel. If you go back to chapter 1, we, we read about how he described the situation when they first 
got to the city and preached the gospel and started up the church, that God was with them in a unique way, a powerful way, as the gospel was preached, and they responded in a similar way. And the church immediately grew up overnight, if you will, and started to grow and spread the gospel. And in a sense, then, this team, they, they, this people, and these people in this church really are his pride and joy. They're his children in the faith, you see. Later on in Romans 15, Paul will talk about his reasons for boasting and things pertaining to God. And he says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And so it's proper to boast in the Lord's work through us and not take credit for other people's work, which sometimes sadly is common in the Christian realm, and people account other people's works for themselves, but just simply what the Lord has done through us and we give God the glory for it. And so when we get to the end of this little section, one of these passages that that I've memorized for ministry's sake is Paul's hope, his joy, his victory glory, they're all tied up with the Thessalonians and who these people are. Remember, they had become so dear to him, he said earlier, that not only did we share the gospel with you, we shared our own lives with you. It wasn't just the message, it was our life. And they have a common destiny together, and so they're an embodiment of what the future holds. And he's looking forward to that final day of victory with the coming or the presence of the Lord Jesus. And so that's why he's even eager to be with them right now, because that, again, is always a foretaste of the glory to come. So his first action, when he's separated from them in a violent way, is not to run from the situation, but is to try to get to visit them as, as soon as possible to fellowship with them. Because when you think about new believers, young believers, you know, Satan makes it always hard to get together with them. You ever notice that? You show the gospel to somebody, they express interest in Christ, they want to meet with you to study the Bible, or maybe they're a new believer and you've got it on your schedule to get together, to pray together, fellowship. And then somehow it always happens that your schedules don't click. They don't work out. Or there's something that seems to always be happening in their life to make it hard to happen. And, and, or maybe their, their friends or their family are so opposed that they keep them from meeting with you. That's Satan thwarting, making it hard for us to, to visit with them and to fellowship with them in love. You see, Satan's a real enemy, but he's not omnipotent. And we should treat him as such and fight him in the power of God. This is part of the joy of doing ministry, is getting to battle against the evil one and seeing God triumph in people's lives anyway and how he builds up his church. So we love the church so much that we're just wrapped up in its progress. I mean, so keep on seeking to meet with one another and, and fellowship often in love, especially with new and young believers. Don't give up when it gets difficult to meet with them. Just keep pushing ahead, trying to find new ways again and again and how you might get together against Satan's schemes from stopping you. Well, that's the first action he took right away, was to try to get back there as soon as he could, although that wasn't possible, it seems. And so then the next best thing that he can do, if he can't get there, well, maybe somebody else can get in. And so he sends encouragement to them for their perseverance. He sends Timothy back up there to strengthen and encourage them, we learn in verses 1 to 4. And then also to check on their faith status, to make sure that the tempter had actually not tempted them to the point that the whole ministry endeavor was in vain. And so we then read here about this encouragement that he sends in verses 1 to 4. So therefore, 
when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, just as you know. So it became so unbearable that Paul just could not get back to Thessalonica that he decides he's going to send Timothy. Um, not long after they arrived, Timothy arrived in Athens uh, with the team, he sends him back up, and the apostle Paul wants to strengthen them to have him teach them and encourage them, especially regarding this persecution. It was a very common practice in Paul's missionary journeys to tell people about the persecutions that would happen once they became a Christian and aligned their lives with Jesus Christ. You're going to get all sorts of opposition, not just from Satan and the demonic realm, but you're going to get opposition from your own flesh. You're going to get opposition from people around you who don't like the fact that you believe in Jesus. So, for example, at the end of Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 14, it says this, and after they, you know, the team had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So he, so Paul here, maybe. Silvanus with him, that is Silas, same person, different name, sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, and for some reason, we don't know why, Timothy could get back in. And Silas probably went back to Philippi about the same time that Timothy went up back up to Thessalonica. And at the time of writing of the letter, Timothy and Silas had already come back from their little missionary jaunts to do an encouragement to these new churches and brought back reports. And so, um, this would serve to reinforce the ministry. And just weeks previously, so Timothy goes up there, he comes back, gives a report, Paul writes the letter, and Timothy had just been there, and then they received the letter. Now, we know it's best, of course, to work in teams, it always is in the mission field, but the need was so great here, the love of the apostle was so great, that he just sent his, his best, most cherished co-worker, Timothy, up to them, to be left, Paul to be left alone by himself. Timothy was a dear brother in the faith. He was very effective as a gospel minister. And notice how he's glowingly described here. This is an unusual way to describe uh, a Christian, and that is as God's co-worker. That's how much the Apostle Paul thinks of him. In fact, Timothy would often be sent on these types of missions uh, to go back and encourage, to strengthen, to teach, to check on churches. Uh, he was sent back to Corinth during Paul's third missionary journey on this kind of a mission, a very short duration. He was sent to, to Philippi, uh, most likely from Rome, to check on the church at Philippi. And then, of course, uh, later on, you know, he's sent to Ephesus, and he stays there a while. Uh, Timothy is the pastor, long-term pastor at the church of Ephesus. So Paul wanted to make sure that these new believers weren't, weren't, weren't disturbed or deceived by their afflictions. You know, that happens a lot. We've probably seen that. When things get difficult for new believers or young believers, things happen. They start pulling back their commitments. They might compromise uh, their faith. Uh, they just become quiet, disappear on you. It, maybe you want to quit. They wonder. They question. You see, 
So he wants to make sure that this new church, these new believers, this doesn't happen to them. He wants to remind them again that this is what Christians are destined for, persecution and suffering. And he told them this in advance, and they've seen it happen. They saw it happen in real life with Paul and his team, and they've seen it against themselves in the city. So apparently, Timothy comes back, he reports all this to Paul, and it's really good news. And when you think about it, you know, the best way to keep spiritual composure in the face of suffering anyway is to just know that that's part of being a Christian, that it's not abnormal. Just expect it. And that helps us ourselves and it helps other people as we're trying to encourage them in their suffering. It's not, the goal is not getting rid of it. The goal is understanding it properly and, and dealing with it. It's just like a physician might tell you in advance what's going to happen to you as a result of some condition that you have. A goal, one of the goals is to reduce your anxiety about the whole situation. And that's what Jesus did many times too to his disciples, especially in the upper room discourse where he said in John 16, 33, and you can read his whole, his whole little sermonette to them in John 14 to 17 on your own, but he says in the, toward the end, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. In fact, you could use these very words of the Lord Jesus to encourage your brothers and sisters are having a hard time, especially young Christians who don't understand why their parents are so upset that they made a profession of faith in Jesus and got baptized in his name. Also, Timothy was sent to find out some more stuff. He was sent to find out about their faith status in the face of the tempter. He's always got some, something up his sleeve. And so in verse 5, we read, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, again, he says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So interesting here, you know, we've got this we statements that are made all along about Paul and his team, you know, speaking collectively. But then he, he, you see Paul just t speaking about himself when I could bear it no longer, right? And so Paul himself just could not bear it any longer, had to find out the situation. And he wants to see that the church is still there. Hopefully it's not gone. Because often in church planning endeavors, you know, churches can pop up one week, and then the next week they get wiped out. And so he's hoping that it's still there. So the tempter's going to work to lure new believers away from their profession in Jesus, wherever and however he could get them to, to renounce their faith. You know, so there are a lot of good tactics. <clears throat> Suffering is a good one. That works pretty well. But also other things work pretty well, too. Uh, giving people false promises of security. That, that works really well. When you tell people once they become a Christian, their life's going to be perfect, well, that's just setting them up for failure. Because first of all, it's a lie. It's not true. But then second of all, you know, I mean, the evil one can just take advantage of that. But sometimes, you know, we mistakenly can present that or others falsely present it. But, you know, false promises that, you know, now you're going to be wealthy because you're a Christian. You know, some places in the world, that's a very common, common understanding is that Christianity is the path to material success. And if it doesn't happen, and the evil one can be involved, that's a great way to discourage people to, to give up on Christianity. Or working of miracles. There are so many ways, you know, people want that, and then when they don't happen, the tempter just goes after them. You know, he's got plenty of assistance, too. You know, it's not just Satan. He doesn't have to do it all himself. He's got his whole host of demons uh, that work for him. And, uh, and, the, and then you've, he's got all these unbelievers in the world who don't love Jesus Christ. So there's, there's a lot of people on that, on that team. 
And he desires to destroy churches that are new even more so than individuals. Because why not go after the whole group? Just get them all at once rather than just going after people individually. So we need to be concerned about the church as a whole because if it's established in an area, it can continue the ministry of the gospel uh, so much more effectively than just individual believers around in an area. Well, then later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, uh, he writes to believers in Asia Minor, and uh, someday we'll get to go through the book of 1 Peter, but that's a really interesting situation too because a lot of those new believers were sort of uh, just stuck over there in Asia Minor because, you know, the emperor had a great idea to colonize the area, and so, you know, he just volunteered you to go. And so they're over there, and, uh, and the church is growing, and the Apostle Peter at the end of his letter writes to them, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished. Suffering's an accomplishment. By your brethren who are in the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So again, both God and Satan are involved, of course, in the establishment and flourish, flourishing of new churches, though they're not equals. And as Satan would work to discourage the people and to, to destroy their faith, you know, God would make sure that his church would ultimately stand. And Paul would enjoy the fight against the evil one in the power of the Spirit of God. And God would strengthen his church, and he would strengthen them through their trials and temptations allowing them in their lives to strengthen them even deeper. And he would encourage them and teach them by Timothy and others that would go and speak to them in that city. So the second action that the Paul took is that since he couldn't get there himself, he decides to send people who could go to encourage and persevere, uh, to encourage them to persevere, these new believers, these young believers. And, you know, new believers and young believers need a lot of encouragement. It's not just good enough to give them a few Bible verses, or to give them a good little booklet to read. But it takes time to speak with them about those things, to teach more and more deeply, to answer questions, and to pray with them. You see, trials and temptations, you know, should concern us that we read about. Paul's concerned about that. But other people's trials and temptations actually should be more important to us than our own. You ever thought about that? I mean, sometimes it seems that there are some people that we run into that all they can talk about, it seems, is their own trials, their own temptations. And they're wrapped up in those things because they want to succeed through those. They want to grow in their faith, but that's almost actually being selfish with your own spirituality. I mean, what, a, what about being concerned about other people's trials and other people's temptations and how they want to grow through them? That should be a greater concern of ours and how we respond to them. So the fight of consequences for the faith of the church, it's not necessarily for the safety of the church. I mean, if you can get both, that's great if you can get faith and safety, but oftentimes you don't get the safety. But the matter of consequence is the faith of the church. And the weapons we use are the same ones the church has used throughout its history, the Word of God, fellowship with believers, and prayer. So please Love the church so much that you just get wrapped up in its progress, in the gospel. Encourage young believers whenever you meet them. 
those who come to faith, maybe through you. Show them the Scriptures, the Word of God, and pray with them, and even just do it with one another so that we can succeed and continue to grow in the faith. So the Apostle Paul took these two actions. He tries to get back as hard as he can. He can't, so then he takes a second action. He sends off Timothy to encourage them. And then when Timothy comes back, of course, he takes third action. He's rejoicing before God regarding their growth. And so this report that comes back that we read in verses 6 to 8, it's so good that it's as good as the gospel itself. That's how good that news report was to him. And then he just can never give enough thanks to God for them because he's so overwhelmed with joy in verses 9 through 10. And so starting in verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, really live, if you are standing firm in the Lord. So after about, I don't know, say a month or so, Timothy returns with Silas uh, to Corinth, uh, where Paul's ministering the gospel, and Timothy brings good news. In fact, the word here, you see it in your text where it says the good news, that's the word to evangelize in the Greek. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word is used outside of a specific gospel sense. That says a lot. Because that means, again, the report that Timothy gave, that was as good as the gospel. To hear this, the news was so good that he brought, that the church is flourishing. Their faith is strong. Their love for one another is strong. And Timothy also reported how they remember you. They remember our team with all these pleasant remembrances of, well, from our initial visit that was recorded back in Acts 17. And he relayed to Paul and the, uh, and the rest how they really wanted to get together with them too. And it was just as strong, this desire to be together. The Thessalonians have not believed the smear campaign that's been going on in these last few months. They haven't believed it. The work of the evil one is failing. This news encouraged Paul and the team so much because even in Corinth now, they're, they're being persecuted again. You know, one city to the next, preaching the gospel. But you see, nothing is more encouraging than hearing that churches are doing well. That's my heart as a pastor, of course. I hope it is. Right? But I'm always anxious, especially in the mission projects and stuff, that I'm always anxious to find out, so how's the church doing? It's really exciting. But even here, think about local churches and all the other evangelical churches in this area of New Jersey. Does it make you excited and filled with joy when they're doing well? You see, because of the context in which we live in America, often we think that we're like in market competition with these other church businesses. But that's not how we're supposed to view it. We're all on the same team. And so it should bring us great joy when we hear, oh, church over here, they're doing really well. They're growing. Well, praise the Lord. Somebody gets saved and they decide to go to another church. That's wonderful. I hope they grow in the Lord in that church and receive His Word in the fellowship. That's exciting. It's sad when we hear about other churches going through troubles or loss or division or whatever it might be. So our heart needs to be for the large 
church of Jesus Christ in all of its expressions. You see, because Paul and his team say, now they really live. That's what makes them filled with joy. Knowing that the Thessalonians are standing firm in the Lord, they have been rejuvenated as a team now and stimulated. They can finally breathe again knowing what's going on up in that city where they spent so much of their energy for the gospel. And so he can never give enough thanks to God, he tells them in verses 9 and 10, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So this verse 9 probably has a lot of different English translations because it's so packed full of a lot of these emotional terms um, that it's really almost impossible to get the idea of how much joy the apostle's expressing. He's just overflowing with, with excitement over what God has been doing amongst them. And he just gives praise to God and it never stops, he says. I mean, you know the experience personally, I'm sure, finding out about how well someone's doing in the faith that you were wondering about, that you were worried about, and then you get news, whether it was from some kind of a mission campaign you were on or a conversation you had with someone during the week and you find out they are really doing well, or an old friend who somehow you get connected to again that maybe you had shared the, the gospel with a long time ago, and you find out they're doing really well. It just brings so much joy into our lives, seeing people progress in the gospel. So in verse 10, Paul expresses his desire again. He wants to get there still because he wants to complete his work. And Timothy likely reported to the Apostle Paul uh, some of the issues that the church still needed to work on. In fact, next week when we get into chapter 4, you're going to see one of those issues. And as you read through the rest of 1 Thessalonians, there's not, there's not a lot of issues in there, but there are some, and then you read 2 Thessalonians, you can see what the church was still struggling with and what they needed to learn about uh, in order to grow. They still needed some doctrinal instruction. They hadn't uh, uh, understood all the basics of the doctrines yet. And they needed some ethical instruction because they're still struggling with how to live a new life that's pleasing to the Lord when you've got worldliness all around them. And, you know, they've only been, they'd only been there for such a short time. There's so many gaps that need to be filled, so much training that needs to take place, so much maturity that is yet to be gained. And we know there's always more teaching and training to do. Um, that's one reason why, you know, you think about it, God has given His church so many teachers and so many different types of teachers and so many different styles of teachers, because he wants to build up his whole church around the world. And Paul prays for this return visit night and day, means like all the time, it's on his mind with intensity, and he's putting forth this prayer, long hours in prayer, I want to get back there. And he's not going to stop fighting for their faith. So the third action he really takes is just to give joy to God, to to rejoice in Him for their growth. And, And God wants us to do that, to rejoice at other people's growth in the Lord. You know, even if maybe you're not feeling like you're growing personally a lot in the Lord right now, that could be our situation, sometimes it is, but you can rejoice at other people's growth in the Lord. Maybe that'll even stimulate you. In fact, you know, stop sometime during the week and take some time to do this and to rejoice before the Lord for how He's caused growth in other churches in our community and other believers that you've known. I hope you take great joy in the spiritual well-being of other Christians. I hope that you desire to contribute to their spiritual well-being. This is how we live well as a church. 
And it's not just the leaders that are supposed to be doing these things. We're all supposed to be doing these things. We're supposed to love the church so much that we're just wrapped up in its progress in the gospel. Well, finally, the fourth action that the apostle takes is to pray, to pray for their final perfection and holiness. We see this in verses 11 to 13. So again, verse 11, he prays for their reunion and that that would somehow demonstrate how powerful God is, that even though Satan is trying everything he can to stop them, that they get back. That would be great. And then in verse 12 and 13, he prays for their love to abound, and actually that their love would prepare them for Jesus coming back. And so we read in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So it's, it's what's called here a prayer wish. Often scholars will use that word because it's sort of in the third person, and the way it is in the third person, how he's talking about, about praying. But one of the most interesting things about this prayer is that he prays to our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord together to direct his team and his way to them in Thessalonica. It's a, it's a compound subject here with God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It shows the ease at, of early Trinitarian concepts even in the Bible itself. It just came out of his mouth because Jesus is Lord. And if you say that's true, then all of a sudden, now we have a God who's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and of course, we read all over, in the Holy Spirit. And this isn't a theological discourse, this book. The book of Thessalonians, as you figured out by now, it's not about presenting to you a bunch of theology. That's not why it was written. It's presented to us to teach us how to love the church, how to live the gospel life. And yet, how easily this comes out of the apostle's mouth or out of his pen, if you will, and it's only A.D. 51. And the wording here should remind us of what was back in chapter 218. So back in 218, we read, Satan hindered us, Satan thwarted us, Satan broke up the road before us. Well, now when you get to this passage in in our section here, uh, it talks that the word that's used, may he direct our way, is direct, directly, or smoothly, it's, it's the opposite of making it impassable. Satan tried to make the road impassable. May the Lord direct our way and make the path smooth. It's why we know that this whole section from 2.17 all the way to 3.13 is a unit. It, it, it bookends the section. It's what it's about. It's what this whole experience and the prayer is about clearing the way, removing the obstacles, and making a straight path. And here is the end of the story. Paul did return to the Thessalonican church, not once, but twice more, on his third missionary journey. That's really cool. This prayer was answered. And then he prays for their love to prepare them for the future. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This prayer request is addressed directly to the Lord Jesus, and that is for a greater love, a love that continues to abound all the more. Notice the way it's described, abound for love for one another for, and for all. It's a love that's focused on the church, but yet overflows to the world. As we do for you, it, it's, it's a love that he's actually even measuring by the standard in somewhat of himself of what he's already experienced 
His love that He has for the church. He wants them to have the same. And it's a love that prepares them then in holiness, in verse 13, for the return or the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of the enlargement of their love is to establish their hearts in a state of unblameable holiness before our God and Father at the presence or the coming, you can translate it either way, of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. It's a prayer for maturity. He prays that they all just continue to grow. That's Paul's end ministry goal anyway in his letter to the Colossians. He states really what's the motivating factor so much of the time for all of his ministry in his life. And he says, and starting in verse 28 of chapter 1 of Colossians, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete or perfect in Christ. And for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And finally, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back with all his holy ones, all his saints. It could be a reference to both the redeemed and angels. It certainly most likely includes the redeemed, those of us who are in Christ, but probably also includes the angelic host as well. So in light of the persecution, it's comforting and hopeful to know that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back for them in their world with an army much greater than Alexander or the Romans. Or for us, any modern army, the return of Jesus with his saints and his angels is going to be so much more powerful and so much more glorious. The point of that term, by calling us saints or holy ones, is for us to realize that's who we've been made in Christ. And that we now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can and should live that out in our lives. And this is what we pray for for one another. So the fourth action he takes is to pray is to pray for their final perfection in holiness for these young believers, for these new believers, for all believers. In fact, even just reading this passage this morning, and especially this ending part here, we learn better how to pray for ourselves. You know, we don't want to be saying the same thing all the time, but we want to be praying different things. So maybe you, just, you could use this prayer right here. You can pray the Scriptures. And pray these things for one another, that people would grow in their faith, that their love would overflow, that they would be prepared in holiness for Jesus to return. And we can pray with confidence that God will accomplish His work. And hopefully even by praying this way for one another, what will happen is that we'll learn to love the church so much that we'll just get wrapped up in its progress for the gospel. You know, there's so much glory and joy in gospel relationships, especially when they're with new and young believers. I mean, nothing is more thrilling than being a part of somebody's salvation, even if we're not the one that got to see them finally become born again in spirit. But maybe we were the one who got to share with them early on and, and bring them through certain hurdles in their understanding. Or maybe we're the ones that get to receive them right after they've come to faith in Christ. It's so exciting to be a part of people's lives and to see them grow. Well, our passage this morning shows us how we can maximize that glory and maximize that joy in Christian relationships is through those four actions. That's how you increase it, by fellowshipping together, by encouraging one another from the Word, by praising God for what He's done, and by praying for God's perfection to come to fruition. So we can excel still more in these four activities, I'm convinced. But then there's also more that we learned this morning, too, in that 
our involvement here at Calvary in the mission of Jesus, which is the mission we're all on, that He gave to us, that we want to see the gospel efforts expand, whether it's locally here in our community or wherever God may take us in the world to make an impact for the gospel. We'll see what He does. But it's going to involve all those blessings. Yes, it's going to involve fellowshipping with new believers. That's thrilling. It's going to involve encouraging people in their faith to start growing. It's going to involve prayer and praise. But, you know, it's also going to involve some of the other things that we saw this morning, four other things. That is fighting Satan valiantly. It's going to involve that because it's not just a bunch of easy work. There's going to be opposition. And so it's going to involve that, but that's fun because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a glory to fight. And it's going to involve suffering and sacrificing. That's going to happen too. And hopefully we do that well and we encourage other people. It's also going to involve hard work, toiling for other people's growth, even more than for our own. And it's going to be involved praying hard for people, even for a view to the return of Jesus, that they'd be prepared for that day. You see, it's our love of God, our love for His Word, and for His church, for His church, that's really going to keep us going. Let me pray. But Lord Jesus, we praise you for your work of redemption on that cross, the resurrection, your ascension, your reigning in heaven, your glory, your return, the future that we have. But in the meantime, we rejoice in the mission you've given us, that you gave us the, the mission to proclaim your gospel to the very ends of the earth. And it's so thrilling to be a part of it, and we pray that you would guide us that you would give us the strength and the wisdom and the creativity to fight valiantly against the evil one who would destroy new believers, that we would fellowship with them, encourage them, pray for them, build these, these actions up in our lives, and give us the strength we need to suffer and sacrifice well, to toil and to pray hard in all things, so that eventually your church just continues to grow, to become stronger, and to itself multiply. Uh, throughout the world, all for the glory of that final day when we all get to come together as your people under your kingship. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.